So Second Samuel, as we are traveling through the book of Samuel, brings us to a low point in David's life. If you've read ahead, you know what I'm talking about. It says it happened in the spring of the year. Why in the spring of the year? Because the weather's better. And it's still this way. You know, the hear of many battles in December in Afghanistan, you know. At the time when kings go out to, ha to battle, it happened. It was bound to happen. Remember where we left off last time we were here? Joab and his men were fighting a great battle, and they weren't gaining the victory until David went out and led the battle. It should have, that should have been real obvious. That was a lesson that needed to be learned by the king, that he needed to be out there. He needed to be leading the charge. That God was, was teaching, seeking to teach him that. If he wanted victory, he had to be leading it. But he missed it. So what's been happening? Well, David has been amassing wealth, amassing slaves, amassing territory, amassing armies with some chariots, which he probably shouldn't have. But the big thing is he's been adding wives as he violates God's way of doing things. The kings weren't supposed to do that. And in the process of all this amassing, David didn't keep his heart in check with God's written law as he was slowly slipping away. And Christian, you can write your own way it should be done, and you will find yourself slowly slipping away without even realizing you are slipping away. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And so David is where he shouldn't be. No longer serving, leading, fighting. Maybe he's thinking, you know, I've kind of paid my dues. It's retirement time. I know I thought that at one time. I'm going to become self-sufficient age 35. Build me a house. Go be a self-sufficient missionary. And then come back and I'll retire on the house I built. Over time, I've realized, no, I retire when I die. I don't know when you retire, but I'm going to retire when I die because there's too many people left to be impacted about the gospel. But here David is, he's sitting back, and yet there's still so much more to be conquered, so much more territory for them to lay hold of that God had promised the nation of Israel, and he's just kind of kicking it back at Easy Street. But the answer is he can't be. But the truth is God is never going to force his children to do anything. God will let his children slide. He'll throw reminders. But he'll never force this. And so David is sitting in his palace thinking he's arrived, kicking back, that this is the good life and the devil is plotting and watching. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed. No doubt the devil kicked his bed and woke him up. And he walked out on the roof of the king's house. It just happened to be this one particular evening. I don't know if she bathed every day. I would hope that you all would. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And as he continued watching, he observed... The woman was very beautiful to behold. Certainly nothing wrong with bathing. I hope it happens. 
But David says in his own words that she was beautiful to behold. Key word here is behold, to look upon. James talks about being tempted when each one is drawn away because he's looking at something. And he's looking upon something. And rather than looking the other way and running for your life, David chooses the other choice. He keeps on looking. Look the other way and get on your horse and ride out to battle, which definitely should have been his first place decision here. But he doesn't. He keeps looking. Do you know what you would do if something like this happened to you? Joseph did, obviously. You know, he was ready for it. When Potiphar's wife grabbed him, he was ready. He took off running. I hope we all know what we would do. Verse 3, as the coveting and adultery is moving from committing it in his mind and his heart to being done in real time. Because that's where it happens first, men and women. It happens in your mind and it happens in your heart. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And here's an open door escape. Watch this. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? For extra credit, you can go track down Bathsheba's family line. You're going to be a little surprised. We'll get to it before David passes off the scene. But there are three close men that served with David that are attached to her. Now, this is the key verse to the spiritual lesson in this story that we all need to learn. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. We'll come right back here. But if David would have lived out 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13, he, he would have survived. So he, he write, Paul writes here, therefore, everybody got it? Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overcome you except such as common to man, but God is faithful God is never going to allow us or put us into something more than we can handle. But God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But even when it's greater than what you can handle, with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. When a man or woman starts to think of themselves, that they can make up the rules, that they can handle it, that they can handle the sin. Maybe they're thinking they're better than others, that they can play with the fire and not get burned. After all, I've multiplied multiple wives. God is still blessing me. He just won this great victory. Well, what about a one-night fling? Got to watch out. Their destruction is imminent. However, if David was to apply, apply verse 13, just like you and I must apply verse 13 in our lives here, we will survive and thrive. So David's out on his deck. He, the devil probably kicked his bed, woke him up. He's out on his deck. Will you notice he didn't go looking for what he's going to find? I don't think he knew she was out there bathing. But he's out there. It's dark. All of a sudden, he can't sleep. He's up. He walks outside. 
Something's keeping him awake. We don't see that he was entertaining sinful thoughts as he walked out on this deck, but he, when he gets there, there she is. And rather than turning away, always open door number one, he's thinking, he's staring, hey, she's a hottie. And even when he's staring to act on his thoughts, God is still gracious to David because one of his servants said to David, hey, David, isn't that Uriah's wife? I mean, that statement should have slapped him across the head. That statement was verse 13 in 1 Corinthians here being played out to the T. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, certainly in the Old Testament as well. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Three observations from this verse. God is faithful at this point when David is not. God understands David's weakness, but David does not. And God provides an escape for David by the words of one of his servants. But David ignores it. Why? Because of the lust of his own flesh. What should have David done when one of his advisors or servants said, Hey, Davy, I think that cute babe is Uriah's wife. Exactly what verse 14 says in 1 Corinthians 10 here. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. If you stand there flirting with it, think you can handle it, you are in big trouble. That's pride at best. Well, David didn't take off. David didn't run into the temple like he did a, a while back and cry out to God. He doesn't. David, ha, David has been drawn away by looking at her and has turned and that has turned to being enticed, according to James, as there's this progression. And, and being enticed, it conceives to sin, and thus David blows off the way of escape that God provided back in verse 4 here in 2 Samuel 11. Then David sent messengers and took her. She came to him, and, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, proving she wasn't pregnant. God wants everyone to know that. And her monthly period had already happened, and the seven days of being unclean had passed, and here she is. And she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, um, King David, I'm with child. Meaning, if we are found out, we are both going to be stoned to death according to the law. So David, you have to do something. That's what that says there. You have to do something. At this point, the best thing to do is run to God and confess and repent. But leaning on his own understanding, he comes up with a plan. No doubt the enemy whispers in his ear, why don't you just get Uriah to come home and sleep with his wife? No one will do the math. You'll be okay. Wow, what a great plan. And David sent to Joab saying, hey, send me Uriah the Hittite. Please notice that. He's the Hittite. And Job sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked Joab, David asked how Joab was doing. Can someone say awkward small talk? <laughs> you just got done scamming on his wife. Hey, um, so how's the battle going? How are the people doing there? How has the war prospered? I mean, I wonder what that conversation was like. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house 
and wash your feet, you know, get take a bath, why don't you? And go see your wife. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a food basket from the king followed him. Because that will certainly make everything better. Just give him a food basket, you know. Hey, you know, one of those edible bouquet of flowers. And who knows? Praise God. Problem solved. Uriah's been out in the field. His wife is a hottie. I know exactly what they will do. But see, David doesn't know the man. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, hey, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Of course, Uriah said, yes, I did. I mean, haven't you been away from your wife for a long time? Yes, I have. Why did you not go down to your house? Like, that would be like normal. And Uriah, the Hittite. Okay, please take notice of that. He, he wasn't born a Jew. But he's one who has a passion for the things of God. He said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. I mean, that speaks volumes about this man's honor and integrity. And so he says... Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? Seriously, David, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. I say, let my heart be like that of Urias. Now, if this is the man David's dealing with, he's got to do something to the man's morality. So plan number one didn't work, so he quickly jumps into plan number two. Then David said to Urias, Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he, David, made him, Uriah, drunk. See, even David knows drunk people lose their minds and their morals. And at evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So getting drunk might have got Uriah a couple of feet closer, but that's all the farther he moved from the door. So that's strike two. Verse 14, in the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So he is literally carrying out his death sentence here in the letter. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So Joab has to be thinking that Uriah must have really messed up that the king is pronouncing a death sentence on him. I don't know what Uriah, what Joab was be, must be thinking, but I know this, Joab's just as ruthless, and so he acts upon the letter. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite. So who is he? I'm going to tell you. And you're going to have to figure out the other two. Uriah the Hittite is one of David's mighty men. So that's one of the three. You go find the other two. And Uriah the Hittite died also. 
Can you imagine killing one of your original mighty men who came to you when they were distressed, discontented, and in debt? And you killed them to cover over your sin. Crazy. God help us to confess our lust of whatever and repent daily. Because if you don't, it will compound. It's going to compound. If you don't confess your lust. And lust isn't just a sexual term. It can be anything. And you've got to confess it and repent daily. I mean, this is such a clear picture that the devil is satisfied in only getting one-sixteenth of an inch from David at a time. Just like he is with you and me. He doesn't want the whole inch. He just wants one-sixteenth of an inch at a time. And now adding 15 sixteenths, that final sixteenth to David. The devil has the whole inch and is positive that the Lord God will strike down the man in whom the Messiah will come from. And so Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and, and uh, charged the messenger saying, when you have finished telling the matters of the word of the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises, like what a stupid battle plan, Joab. And he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Remember? Our ancestor who struck Abimelech with the son of Jerubasheth, was it not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Remember, he, he was so close, the woman dropped the stone, and then he said, hey, someone kill me because I, I don't want it to be said that some woman killed me. Remember that? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, Notice the long dash there. Like, let him take a breath and calm down. Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite, one of your mighty men, is dead also. Well, that's strike three. The man's out. Even though he has succeeded, at least he thinks he has, he's totally forgotten the God factor. Thus he is so far removed from God by this point because he has deceived himself by his own cunning wisdom. And we can get that way, Christian. That we can write our own rules and write our own laws and somehow think because we're getting away with it, it's okay. Crazy. I think Christians are masters of this today. Taking matters into their own hands and wrapping them up in spiritual words and phrases. And from God's vantage point, they're ungodly actions because God knows the motives of our hearts. So it may appear spiritually on the, spiritual on the outside, but inwardly it's rotten. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. Words to encourage his commander, Joab, out in the field. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. Notice it doesn't say Bathsheba. It hasn't said it yet. She mourned for her husband. 
She doesn't know the plan of David here. At least I don't think. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. No doubt she's probably a little pregnant. And so David brings her to his house as an incredible act of kindness from man's point of view. I mean, here's the king looking out for one of the widows of his fallen soldiers. Wow, what a great guy. And she became his wife and bore him a son. Case closed, problem solved. I get the babe, the baby, and no one knows but a few of my staff. But, <laughs> love the butts here of God. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Yeah, nobody else knew, but God did. So you may think we get away with all of it, but God knows. Because the Lord knows all things and knows the motives of all people. And this time, David has gone too far. First off, David, you should have only had one wife. And you should have been satisfied with that. But, but instead, you have multiples. And now you're out killing men to get their wives. Because sin always seeks to multiply. And thus the hand of God is coming. And I want you to notice how and when God's hand comes upon David and how he responds to it because it's critical in our lives. You want to know if a backslidden Christian is truly saved and see if their response matches David's when they're confronted by their sin. So it's been at least 10 months, maybe a year or more. No one really knows. David coveted another man's wife, commandment number 10 broken. He did that in his heart and in real life. He committed adultery in the heart and in the, in the mind in real time, commandment number 7 is broken. He committed murder, commandment number 6 is broken, and maybe a couple more. And to think this opportunity to sin came about when David stayed home rather than going out and doing the right thing as he went out to battle for his Lord. That's all he needed to be doing. His now reaping what he had sown in his heart started years earlier when he got wife number two, wife number three, and multiple wives thereafter. And, and who knows, maybe opportunity is knocking here as he lives life by his own rules, taking another wife. This one that we had to kill for. It's crazy. The man after God's own heart here. Well, David missing the conviction of the Holy Ghost Cross out that number 12, chapter number 12 right there. <clears throat> because, remember, it was never written. So David is totally missing the conviction of the Holy Ghost. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. So what is the man after God's own heart doing or thinking about in this season of life? Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4 is the answer. Of course, he doesn't write that at this time. This is written after he's confronted by God, but let me... Read this to you. Here's what life was like for the man living by his own rules before Nathan showed up. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Obviously, he was convicted of his sin, but he was also trapped in his sin. I don't know if he knew how to get out of it. And teen, 
There are people today by the tens of thousands in the church today that are trapped like David's, the man after God's own heart, who are sexually involved and living in sexual morality. And David, uh, Nathan, and God it sends Nathan to David to this one who's trapped. You know what? So when you find out about him, please don't do nothing. Don't look the other way. And certainly don't agree with their sin, but go to them the way you would want someone to come to you. Team, you and I are commanded to do this. L listen to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, sisters, if a man is overtaken in it, or a woman is overtaken in any trespass, you who are, who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. For in doing so, verse 2, you'll be bearing one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's what Nathan's going to do to David. Rather than agreeing with somebody's sin, you're going to go to them. But you're not going to go as some high mighty Pharisee. You're going to go the same way you want someone to come to you. And yeah, some people may hate you for it today. That just proves they're never saved. Some might become your best friends, even if they get mad at you at first. My encouragement to us all is be a Nathan to people. Working with people that are calling themselves Christians or shacked up. Hey, look at, hey, right here, 1 Thessalonians 4. Look, it says, this is the will of God. Right here. You abstain from sex. Right here. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. Please see that. It took a man. Of course, Nathan's the prophet, so be a prophet. Go to somebody. Tell them the truth. Because if, if Jesus comes back and they're living that way, they're not going to get into heaven. There's five places, six places in the scriptures that say that in the New Testament. Care enough to go. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, because David couldn't see a sin in his own life, He's gonna, Nathan's going to create this little story here. There are two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he brought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It was like a family pet. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his own bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man and refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, coveting, stealing, and murder, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, before David answers, please notice that Nathan is not asking for or looking for direction from the king. He's not. Nathan doesn't say, what do you think we should do, king? David's going to offer an answer. But then your sin always looks better on other people more easily than it does in your own life. At least that's what I've seen in Christianity. That someone can see my sin easily and me failing to miss it in their own life. So when you judge some other man, you should immediately look in the mirror. For yours is probably more likely worse than the one that you've judged unworthy. It's critical. It's an epidemic in the church today. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this shall surely die. 
yeah, we weren't exactly looking for an answer, David. But the reality is, this whole little scenario that Nathan points out here, this is what got David into the mess in his first in the first place. His critical and judgmental spirit that the Bible records for us right here gave him the right, or so he thought, to play God's game by his own rules. Certainly nothing wrong with casting judgment on sin, on sin. I think we all need to, while we recognize that we are able to do the very same thing that the very next person is capable of doing. But David cast judgment on the person. See, if you look down on David's failures here, I feel sorry for you because you can't even see your own failures in your life. That's what the Pharisees did to Jesus. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, that man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb. That's what the law said. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So David knew the law, it seems. But he had lost connection with the lawgiver. I think we could say, hey, David, you need to get the log out of your own eye here first. See, David thought, like too many Christians, that time is a means of repentance. After all, it happened so long ago. Sure, I blew it, but and maybe I should have done something about it. But so much time has passed now. Let's just kind of blow it off. It's okay. You can't do that if you think that way, by the way. If God convicts you on something and you blow off his voice because it was something that happened last week or last month or last year, you still need to respond to that soft, still voice. And probably need to go back to that place where God was trying to convict you of that thing without even knowing it. So it's so crazy here. David has pronounced judgment on himself as he judged another man. And it's just a fictitious man at that. And so David must be thinking, or at least feeling pretty good about the answer until verse 7. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. But David, you chose the cheap counterfeit called sin instead. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword. Huh. You've killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. The enemy killed one of David's mighty men. And God holding that to David. Because it says, You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. And we're going to see the consequence of his sins throughout the rest of his life. There's animosity. There's murder. There's death and destruction throughout the rest of his life. 
and it's never going to depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of <coughs> excuse me and have taken the wife of your the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it, you committed this sin secretly, but I will do this before all Israel. And it's going to happen, we'll read about it, before the son. So David said to Nathan, and this has got to be our response. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's the proper response to you. God doesn't want or need a line of excuses or reasons. That's not ownership of sin, but blame shifting like Saul did. So when this these words here, I have sinned against the Lord, only two Hebrew words, kahata Yehovah. Two words. That's all David says here. Genuine repentance is real and to the point. Repentance is not, so David said to Nathan, it's not my fault. You don't understand. She shouldn't have been out there bathing below my palace in the first place. Just for the record, she was bathing when everyone else was sleeping. Remember, David rose from his bed when the devil kicked it. Oh, Nathan, that stuff's just old-fashioned and outdated anyway. I've heard that from people that call themselves Christians. My other wives were not meeting my need, Nathan. Wow, I didn't know she was married. I thought they were living together. She is a beautiful babe, and I couldn't help myself. If God hadn't made her so beautiful, I wouldn't have done it. I think it's God's fault. Had David taken that track, that track of Saul, the excuse maker, and blaming others, I really believe as I look at the end of verse 13 that God would have struck David down right here on the spot. But David, the man after God's own heart, doesn't act that way. You can go read Psalm 51 tonight for more extra credit. David writes that psalm during this difficult season of his life. But verse 13 is total ownership by himself here. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to, said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. You know, like you wanted the sheep stealer to die. And like the law said, you should die. The Lord has put it away. All of it, and you shall not die. Don't ever underestimate confession and forgiveness. And I mean, this is such a great picture of confession and forgiveness in action. You know, I think so often we just kind of blow, the off, blow it off. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, everybody does it. Can't do that. Please notice there was no delay on God's part of offering forgiveness. When David said, I have sinned against God, Nathan, boom, God's heard and God has forgiven. However, sin has consequences attached to it. Certainly this does. Verse 14. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. And as I look at this story so far, I recognize any part of it could have happened or could happen to me. Because see, as I look at my own flesh, I realize that I am capable of pulling off any of these things that David just did. And I hope you can recognize that as well. Otherwise, take heed lest you stand. You're going to fall. 
because there's no one's flesh in here that is any better or any worse than the next person's. It's not. You, you look at this and go, oh, I'll never do that. Man, you already set yourself up. Your flesh will do anything just like mine will. The other thing I see from this is that anointed people, meaning Christians, can fall into sin. And yet when confronted about it, they'll repent like David does here. And, and which is why we want to put Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 into practice and go and speak God's truth to them. And if they make excuses and tell you off, well, I, that person's probably not a Christian. Unless, of course, they come back and say, you know what? You were right. I was wrong. And they seek to restore the relationship with you. But we all need to go if we care about God's family. You know, you know someone living in sin. If you care about God's family, you got to go. If you don't care about God's family, don't go. But then that says more about you than it does the person living in sin. Because David stayed trapped until somebody went. I can't just stand back and see what they're doing and let the person die in the corner spiritually. I can't live that way. And I don't know how you can either. There they are. Because see, physically, if somebody was at work or at school or in your neighborhood and they were in the corner uh, and their arm was cut off, you would rush in there and get them to the hospital. So what? They lose an arm. They'll still make it into heaven. Spiritually, if they're living in sin and you don't go to them, those who live this way won't get into heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is the first one that comes to my mind. Revelation chapter 22, no, 21 is another place. We should take care of God's family. If I love, I will go in love and speak in love for the sole purpose of restoration of God's people, just like Nathan did with David. If we love, we're all going to go and seek to restore when someone goes over the deep end. It's got to be help happening in a healthy body. A healthy body can purge itself of its poisons and it will survive. If you don't, it'll die. Here's the consequences of David's sin. Verse 15. Then Nathan departed to his house and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife, notice it's still not her name, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and it became ill. Even though Uriah had been killed, God's on record here, that that never makes it right in his eyes by referring to the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. You and I will never go wrong seeking God's mercy team. Look at all the times that Moses went in and pleaded with God for, the, for God's mercy for the people of Israel, and God granted it to him. So you'll never go wrong seeking God's mercy. And, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. You'll never go wrong with that. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Huh, I wonder why the elders went. Maybe they don't know the story yet. Then on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died, thus proving that prayer and fasting does not force God to answer every one of my request or prayers and the servants of David were afraid to tell David that the child was dead I mean they're thinking he's going to go crazy on him for they said indeed while the child was alive we spoke to him and he would not heed our voice how can we tell him that the child is dead he may do some harm like he may go ballistic and harm us 
And when David saw that his servants were whispering behind his back, I add, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead, and took off running in the opposite direction. It doesn't say that either. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped, no doubt freaking out his servants. You know, David receiving and resting in the peace of God in the midst of the trial is critical to you. You have to keep for moving forward no matter what the trial is, or you'll get bogged down and buried. Now, David's actions here of seeking the Lord in the loss of a child has his servants not understanding what's going out, what's going on. But we have found is you have to continue to worship the Lord even in the midst of the loss. And yes, people will question your motives and and, and yes, people will question your actions, just like they do to David, but you got to keep moving forward. Then he went to his own house. And when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. And they're still scratching their heads trying to figure this whole thing out. So they come to him. Then his servant said to him, what is this that you have done? We don't get this. We don't understand this. You fasted and you like and wept, no doubt, loud for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose. You went into the house of the Lord and you're eating food. And, and here's David's answer. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? Nobody, you'll never go wrong pleading against the mercies of the Lord. But now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? That answer is no. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me, proving that babies, no matter how small, born or unborn, go right in the very presence of God. Now, what's the age? I don't know. I'll never put an age on it. But this is our great hope team. I'm going to go to him. He's, he's not coming back to me. Why would I want that? That would be ridiculously selfish on my part. Hey, can you come back so I don't feel so left out? Can you, can you come back so you can be tempted to sin again? That's crazy. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. We don't want him to return. For where they are, that's where we're headed. And so, you know, so many, as, as I was thinking about this today, so many have a reunion with those in heaven that they've never held. And yet I wonder how many will be in heaven that will never meet their mothers because their mothers never turned to Jesus. Great truth in here about where little children go when they die. I hope we can see it. Great lesson in here about fasting. I hope you can see it. We should. Great lesson in here about being merciful and not judgmental. I hope you can see it. But let's talk about something different. Let's talk about sin some of which has consequences attached to it. But when the consequences have passed, and they always do, God, who is rich in mercy, restores blessing. Look at verse 24. Then David comforted, watch for this, then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife. Wow, something's changed. After confession of sin, after coming clean with God, and God dealing with their sin, God now has his writer write her name. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son. Please don't miss this. 
I, I don't know how anyone can let the devil lie to them anymore once you look at what's happening here. You, gotta, you have to be able to connect all the dots for yourself. I'm not going to connect them all for you. All you got to do is let it speak for itself. Let the living word speak for himself. So she bore a son, and he called his name, David called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him. Who? Who's him? The baby. And he, please take notice here, God does not hang guilt on you about your sin forever. Now the Lord loved him. The Lord's doing all the action here. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet that the Lord loved baby Solomon. Please don't miss this. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah means beloved of Jehovah. Even after all the sin, as long as true confession of heart and repentance took place, God does not, has not, and never will hold this guilt or condemnation over his children ever. We all should know Romans chapter 1, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Yes, David sinned. Yes, David was confronted by his sin. Yes, David sought forgiveness and repented of his sin. Yes, there were consequences to David's sin. But when God restored his fellowship with David, then God blessed him with Solomon, his son. And he's right here on record that he loved him. That's the God we all serve and worship to. And so I, as I was thinking this through, is there anything in your life that you think God could never forgive you of that you've never asked because you just think, well, first of all, you should, you should change your thinking because that's religious thinking. Is there something that you think God could never restore to you because of something? No. You need to forgive and be forgiven. If you think that, that God can't, that's not what the Bible teaches here. So if you have a thing in your life, don't hide it or bury it. Bring it out to the true light and confess it to your Lord. Because there's only one sin the Bible names that God won't forgive you. There's only one sin that the Bible names that God won't forgive, and it's the failure to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven and an outright refusal to walk in his ways. You have to abide in him. Great pictures. Incredible truths. Everybody's got to learn from it here. It's critical. Father, we're thankful, Lord, for the pictures, the theology, from learning life's lessons from one of your own and not having to learn it ourselves. 